All right, I hereby fire all of the Manhattan Institute press office and appoint the two Chrises. <laughs> from now on, you write all of my, not that I get any from them, but boy, was that ever generous and inspiring, and I, I wish I could live up to uh, such, such wonderful and eloquent words. And it's such a pleasure and honor to be at the Eagle Forum, one of the most far-sighted, early uh, defenders of our civilization when few people realized what was at stake. And for all its efforts, I'm afraid it still is needed, uh, all the more so today. So this is a great honor to finally be with you today, and thank you so much for having me. Yes, last, yesterday I came in very early to New York to be uh, a witness at the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, Jerry Nadler was taking some time off from the emoluments and, and uh, impeachment investigations to turn the collective fury of the Democrats onto policing. Uh, which was relevant to us, as um, the Chris has mentioned in my previous book, The War on Cops. Nevertheless, it, it sadly has a huge uh, overlap with what I'm going to talk about today because the theme uh, of yesterday's hearing from the Democrats was pure race and identity politics. It was the same same mantra that we're white supremacists, that policing is racially biased, we're living through an epidemic of racially biased shootings of black men, none of which is true. Uh, and this is standard rhetoric, but what is very worrisome <laughs> is that if the Democrats gain control of the White House and, say, Congress, uh, policing's in a lot of trouble. What their agenda was that they laid out uh, is going to set us way back in terms of public safety in this, in this country. So uh, all you people that are working to educate voters are doing very, very important work because everything is at stake, I think, in this ne next election. So, so let's broaden it out a little bit with uh, political discourse. And if you've been paying at all of attention, and I'm sure people in this room have, uh, you have noticed that the so-called identity issue is front and center. The, the mainstream media, the New York Times, the Washington Post, cannot write a headline without talking about race and gender. So for one of the, now it's perhaps the th third previous debate, the only thing we read about was 10 white candidates on stage, as if their color was more important than the fact that many of them want to completely legalize illegal entry in the country and to move our economy towards socialism. But that's irrelevant. What's really important is, heaven forbid, they're all white. Uh, and politicians, of course, label themselves by race and gender. You, we all know these phrases. That it's so, so restrictive. As a white woman or as a black woman, who cares? But that's what we hear, and so we have Ayanna Presley, who was at, in attendance at the, um, as an observer at the hearing yesterday, to great applause and acclaim. She warned recently, she, Ayanna Presley is she of the squad, one of the four uh, horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, she warned recently that the Democratic Party, quote, we don't need any black voices, any black faces that don't want to be a black voice. We don't need queers that don't want to be a queer voice, assuming that 
by being black, you're completely predictable. There's one way to be black. Comes with a certain set of ideas, and if you don't check those ideas, you're of no use to us. Same with being queer. Now, you may have also noticed, if you've been paying attention, some odd asymmetries. These are the claims that are not deemed racially divisive uh, by the mainstream media. The criminal justice system is racist from front to back, Elizabeth Warren. From the last Democratic debate, racism in America is foundational. People of color are under mortal threat from the white supremacist in the White House, Beto O'Rourke. Systemic racism will be with us no matter who wins the presidency. Pete Buttigieg, apparently that includes him as well. Uh, the essence of America is, is to destroy the black body, Ta-Nehisi Coates. If any of you have college-aged children and you haven't chosen their college very carefully, they will undoubtedly have been brainwashed by the poisonous writings of Ta-Nehisi Coates, a writer for The Atlantic, one of the most dangerous voices as far as civil u civic unity today. Of course, we all remember half of Trump voters are irredeemable racists, sexists, homophobes, xenophobes, and Islamophobes who belong in a basket of deplorables, Hillary Clinton. Just factual statements here. Uh, the Betsy Ross flag is a symbol of white supremacy, Colin Kaepernick. A mural of George Washington is also a symbol of white supremacy, the San Francisco School Board. Now, none of these positions is racially divisive. Simply the truth, per the media. Now these, however, are corrosive and racist, such as criticizing the politicians who represent a city that would be nearby Baltimore, where children and the elderly are routinely gunned down in drive-by shootings on street corners, now experiencing its highest per capita homicide rate in its history. To criticize the leaders of that city is just racist. Likewise, calling out four congressmen, them of the squad, for their unrelentingly hostile portrayal of the US is mired in, quote, bigotry, sexism, and xenophobia, in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's words, can have nothing to do with the substance of their positions, but is simply motivated by race and religion. Now, identity politics and anti-racism have become the religion of key American institutions, whether in the corporate world, academia, or the media. The only problem is cases of actual bias are becoming ever more elusive. You therefore have to get creative. As you may recall, a tsunami of hatred crashed down upon a group of schoolboys from Covington, Kentucky this January because a doctored video showed one of the students a smile frozen on his face looking a Native American activist in the eye as the activist banged a drum and chanted inches away from the hapless student. The media and the democratic political class let out a glad cry. Here at last was ocular proof of American racism. Mirabile Dictu, the boy was even wearing a MAGA hat. It doesn't get better than that. The boy was, quote, the smiling face of whiteness, declared a University of Pennsylvania education professor. Whiteness, she added, that, quote, harms and maims and kills. New York Times columnist Charles Blow declared the MAGA hat the new iconography of white supremacy. And after someone got around to actually viewing the full video, 
which demolished the entire narrative about white male aggression towards people of color, the liberal establishment remained unchastened, ready for the next phony incident to supply it with still desperately needed corroboration for its favorite trope about patriarchal white supremacy. And that next fabrication was quick in coming. The actor Jesse Smollett correctly bet that the political and media elites would deliriously welcome an absurd tale about his victimization at 2 a.m. in sub-freezing Chicago by MAGA hat supporters uh, because when it comes to white perpetrated hate crimes, the demand for such examples of hate is bottomless, but the supply is woefully thin. Now, when Chicago District Attorney Kim Fox uh, dropped all charges against Smollett for his costly hoax, and then came under sharp criticism for doing so, racial activists claimed that the only reason for that criticism was that she was black. So what is behind this frenzied drive to find spectral racism? A corrupt academic culture that has leapt out of the ivory tower and is fast remaking the world in its image. That culture is dedicated to three propositions that I have called the diversity delusion. First, that the most important thing about any individual is his race and gender, uh, and that those characteristics are the core feature, and that, excuse me, that discrimination based on those characteristics is the core feature of the United States in particular and Western civilization in general. And third, that any lack of exact proportional representation based on sex and gender in any American institution is by definition the result of racism and sexism. Business and nonprofit leaders would rather accuse their own organizations of bigotry than acknowledge the academic skills gaps, behavioral and cultural differences, and different career preferences that account for racial and gender disparities in the workplace and elsewhere. The diversity delusion is engulfing every aspect of American life. The Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, now sadly exhumed, at least temporarily, but maybe we've put that thing back in the coffin where it belongs, uh, imported campus rape ideology into the Senate Judiciary Committee with its believe survivors mantra, in the process almost destroying the central achievement of the Western jurisprudential tradition, the presumption of innocence. The Black Lives Matter movement, which I've done such battle by and I've been doxed by, is a street version of the academic idea that America's criminal justice system is lethally racist and that the overrepresentation of blacks in prison must be the result of bigotry rather than of blacks' exponentially higher rates of criminal offending. In New York City, the school's chancellor and mayor, yay, no longer presidential candidate, although it was fun to watch, uh, and he got, us, got him out of the city, for God's sakes, are demolishing, <laughs> and it won't be any better with his return, believe me, are demolishing the last vestiges of academic standards in the school system in the name of fighting racism that is the only allowable explanation for the academic skills gap. So let's take a brief tour of where these corrosive ideas begin. America's universities. In a word, colleges are in the grip of a mass hysteria. Students actually believe 
that they are at risk of their lives from circumambient racism and sexism. The degree of maudlin caterwauling is impossible to overstate. At Brown, students of color met with the president to demand exemption from such ordinary academic expectations as going to class or studying for, for exams because they said they were so, quote, focused on staying alive at Brown. <laughs> at Yale, a mob of minority students surrounded a respected sociologist and screamed at him for two hours because his wife had suggested that students could choose their own Halloween costumes for themselves, free from the tender ministrations of Yale's diversity and discrimination watchdogs. Among the shouts of, shut the F up, and you were disgusting, that were directed at this mild-mannered left-wing professor, was a cry of, we're dying, <laughs> referring to the allegedly endangered status of Yale's minority students. This delusional mindset is getting angrier and angrier. This spring at Williams College, black students asked the student council for money for a blacks-only event. The money was not immediately forthcoming. One of the petitioners exploded. Now, I'm going to read his statement. Do you want the expurgated or the unexpurgated version? And I'm warning you, it's pretty raw. Is this a family? Un, you can take it? Okay. We'll, we believe in standards, but just this once, we're going to drop them, okay? All right. It's time for you all to figure this Check yourself, because I'm really losing it. We're tired of having to come and beg and suck. Every time to be here is like sucking white every day. Closing our mouths every day just to be here. And if we dare ask for a little bit of time, money, and space, we got to suck some more. It's so frustrating. It's so tiring to be here, to be with y'all. This rage is not an aberration. It is ubiquitous and almost inevitably rewarded. Perhaps you are thinking, well, at least the adults on campus are trying to give students a firmer grip on reality. <laughs> Wrong. A massive diversity bureaucracy is devoted to cultivating in students ever more arcane species of self-involvement and ever more preposterous forms of self-pity. Students regularly act out little psychodramas of oppression before an appreciative audience of diversity deanlets and vice chancellors of equity, diversity, and inclusion who use the occasion to expand their domain. If you want to know why tuition is so obscenely expensive, look no further than these diversity sinecures who multiply by the day. Many campuses have created bias response teams, modeled presumably on active shooter response teams, on the theory that discrimination is so rampant and lethal on campus that a rapid defense force is needed. Freshman orientations and dorm sessions feature seminars in toxic masculinity and white privilege. Students are taught that they are either the oppressed or the oppressors. If you are not female, black, Hispanic, gay, or any of the 116 and still metastasizing varieties of gender, the only way you can escape being an oppressor is by becoming a, quote, ally. Now, allies are something usually associated with war. And indeed, the thinking is that students of color and females are in a war zone on college campuses and need allies from the opposing side to survive. Am I exaggerating? I am not. 
the University of California at Berkeley, hung banners throughout campus reminding students of the university's paramount mission, assigning guilt and innocence in the ruthlessly competitive totem pole of victimhood. One banner featured a female black student and a male Hispanic student allegedly pleading, allow people other than yourself to exist, a plea directed at Berkeley's white students and faculty. The diversity bureaucracy aspires to total control. You can't even answer the call of nature without being harangued. University of Minnesota diversocrats posted flyers in all dormitory bathrooms reminding students about their white privilege. Now, college presidents are the worst enablers of victimology. After the expletive-filled tirade directed against the Yale sociologist, Yale's president, Peter Salovey, actually thanked the student thugs for making him proud of his student body. Yale subsequently conferred a racial justice prize on two of the most vocal participants. The dean of the Harvard Medical School recently removed the portraits of its greatest physician scientists from one of the teaching hospitals in the Harvard uh, constellation. You can guess the reason. They were all male and thus looking on them would make Harvard's medical students feel uncomfortable and unsafe. We can only wish these budding doctors luck in the operating room. The faculty are equally complicitous. A math professor at Vanderbilt University argues that mathematics is a, quote, white and heteronormatively masculinized space. Hobart and Williams College offers a course in white mythologies, which posits that objectivity and meritocracy are smokescreens for, wait for it, slavery and the subjugation of women. A teaching assistant at the University of Georgia announced confidently that, quote, some white people may have to die for black communities to be made whole in this struggle to advance our freedom, anticipating Ta-Nehisi Coates. Shortly before the strident tantrum at the Williams Student Council, several self-identified black queer feminist professors walked off the job to protest Williams's quote, anti-blackness and violent practices. Now, I'm just gonna observe in passing that there is no more tolerant spot on earth for black queer feminists than Williams College and every other American college today. Identity politics has destroyed the serious pursuit of knowledge throughout the humanities and most of the social sciences. Students are being given a license for ignorance. All they need to know about a book is the melanin content and gonads of its authors to know whether it is, they can dismiss it as thoroughly repugnant and not worth reading. Shakespeare, Milton, Chaucer, Plato, Kant, Locke, and Mill have been variously defenestrated by students who have not the slightest clue about Periclean Athens, the Renaissance, or the Enlightenment. A Columbia undergraduate groused about Columbia's beleaguered core curriculum, quote, who is this Mozart, this Haydn, these superior white men, the core, she said, upholds the premises of white supremacy and racism. No professor 
has ever defended our intellectual patrimony against such ecstatic know-nothingism without adding some puling qualification about respect for diversity. And now every non-academic institution, no matter how previously meritocratic, is also in the crosshairs, and that means above all the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math. Exhibit A, in our culture's descent into identity-driven mediocrity, is the firing of computer engineer James Damore from Google in August of 2017. Damore had written a carefully reasoned fact-based memo suggesting that the average career preferences of men and women explain why there's not perfect 50-50 gender parity at Google and other big tech firms. The language that Google's CEO used in firing Mr. Damore was a direct import from academic victimology. Google's employees were, quote, hurting, he said, because Damore had dared challenge the reigning orthodoxy. What followed Mr. Damore's firing was even more disturbing. A regional branch of the National Labor Relations Board upheld Google's actions on the same grounds. Mr. Demore's memo had made Google's employees feel, quote, unsafe at work, according to the Associate General Counsel of the NLRB. It thus constituted, quote, discrimination and sexual harassment. Now consider for what a moment what this NLRB ruling means for science. Any evolutionary biology, economist, or psychologist who studies the different risk preferences and appetite for competition among males and females is vulnerable. Those branches of science could shut down entirely, no matter that their findings are true. The mad rage for gender and race proportionality is in the workplace is accelerating, especially in the Me Too era. From here on out, everything you read Everything you watch, if you subject yourselves to such things in the mainstream media, will have been calculated in, in conformity with the demands of diversity. Newsrooms are under enormous pressure to find reporters, select sources, and originate stories that, origin that improve their diversity profile. The New York Times now has a gender editor, a race editor, and is engaged in this big, huge project read Pulitzer Prize bait uh, on, America, on slavery and the fact that it is permanently with us and defines every aspect about America, the so-called 1619 Project, keep your kids away. Book publishers are obsessively scrutinizing their lists for diverse authors and themes. Thanks to media pressure and their own human resources departments, corporate boardrooms have made a fetish of gender proportionality. As a result, when I get a proxy ballot, I routinely, automatically vote against every female on that ballot. <laughs> because there's a very, very large chance that the only reason there she's on there is because of her gender, and I'm not going to risk it. If you are a white male in any field, no matter how talented, you're going to have to meet a higher standard to get hired or promoted. If you have a white male son, and he is neither gay nor trans, woe unto him. California Polytechnic University has proudly announced that it was successfully reducing the number of white students whom it enrolled. Other colleges are not as forthright about their intentions, but they are all involved in the same enterprise, as we've seen recently with the lawsuit against Harvard, which is completely emblematic. There's nothing different about what Harvard's doing compared to any place else. 
a respected Midwestern evangelical college, has virtually stopped admitting white males into its graduate programs because it knows they will have such a hard time getting a teaching job, and it doesn't want to hurt its placement statistics. At Microsoft, managers get bonuses if they don't hire and promote white men. Has anyone heard of Mannels? Okay, well listen up. This is a wave, a sign, another signpost of the future. A Mannel is a panel of experts consisting mostly of men. Mannels are now verboten in woke society, no matter if the pa male panelists at an Alzheimer's conference, say, are the most cutting-edge scientists in the field. Last year, a professor at the University of California, Davis, demanded that every male scheduled for an upcoming conference on microbes resign and that the conference sponsors withdraw their support since the invited presenters were heavily male. The lineup immediately changed to a near majority of females. The University of California at San Diego congratulated itself earlier this year for inviting only females to a biology conference. Fannels, you see, are not just okay, they are glorious. Were the UC San Diego fanalists the best researchers in the field? Who cares? Even classical music is being poisoned by identity politics. New Yorker music critic Alex Ross triggered outrage against the Chicago Symphony and Philadelphia Symphony Orchestras by tweeting that they had, pub, were, had programmed no female composers in their upcoming season. Never mind that at that very moment, the Chicago Symphony was at Carnegie Hall performing Jennifer Higdon's Concerto for the Low Brass, a work commissioned by the Chicago and Philadelphia Symphony Orchestras, undoubtedly at greatly inflated cost. It is absurd to expect gender parity in the concert hall. The reality is this. The greatest composers of all time, whether Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, Chopin, or Brahms, were male. Get over it. And simply be grateful for the beauty that they gave us unworthy mortals. But classical music boards are also under enormous pressure to hire by gender and race for conducting positions and everything else. A classical music agent told me wistfully, quote, if I had a trans conductor, I'd be rich. Now, it is an unalloyed pleasure that Hollywood is being forced to sacrifice its best box office judgment to meet the demands of the race and gender bean counters. But it is in the sciences where the diversity imperative becomes most momentous. Every academic science department, whether physics, mathematics, or chemistry, is at risk. The federal government is demanding that science departments hire based on gender, race, and sexual orientation rather than scientific merit. University administrators are ordering faculty search committees to tear up their short list for hiring and reconfigure those lists to include more females, regardless of qualifications. Science education is being slowed down and watered down in the hope of graduating more females and underrepresented minorities. An oncologist at an Ivy League medical school was berated by his dean for giving a pharmacology exam that was too, quote, fact-based. 
Well, I don't know about you, but if I have cancer, I want my doctor to know the facts about drug interactions. The National Science Foundation is doling out millions of your taxpayer dollars to study alleged microaggressions and heteronormativity in engineering and math, arguing that discrimination against so-called diverse scientists is pervasive and that only so-called diverse labs can achieve scientific breakthroughs. Well, that's odd because the 200 or so science, National Science Foundation grantees who've won Nobel Prizes in such fields as discovering dark matter or the genetics of viruses managed to make their scientific breakthroughs without conforming to today's diversity metrics. And of course, the mania for gender and race parity in science continues into the private sector. After James Damore was fired, a human resources manager sued YouTube and Google for firing him because he had refused to go along with the edict to interview only females, blacks, and Hispanics for entry-level engineering jobs. Potentially groundbreaking scientists are being passed over today because they are of the wrong race and gender. Guess who does not care about diversity metrics? You got it. The best thing that Don, and anybody didn't hear that, was China. The best thing that Donald Trump could do to level the playing field would be to airlift a few cargo planes of gender theorists from American universities <laughs> and dump them onto Beijing University and its research labs. Good riddance, but until that happens, China is going to inexorably pull ahead because in the sciences, at least, it seems to care only about scientific merit. Academic identity politics is tearing our society apart. It is teaching young people to hate, to hate the greatest creators and thinkers of the past, and to hate their fellow Americans. And a backlash is brewing among the lost, fatherless young men who are being told relentlessly that they are sources the source of all the world's evils. Well, the mass shootings that we've seen in the last couple months are trivial compared to the daily violence that's going on in the inner cities. They're a minute percentage that gets a huge amount of attention. Uh, nevertheless, I fear that they will continue under the current ideology that is so disparaging uh, and playing its own identity politics against against white males. The diversity delusion, therefore, has to be explicitly challenged. The next time self-engrossed students occupy a campus building demanding more reparations, here's what their college president should say. Are you kidding me? <laughs> You're the most privileged human beings in history. You have at your fingertips the thing that Faust sold his soul for, knowledge. You have access to libraries that would have driven the Renaissance humanists mad with envy and desire. You can read every book that has ever been written. You have access to scientific laboratories that are the most advanced in the world. You can pursue languages, literature, and history. Everything is available. Far from discriminating against females and minorities in hiring, I can assure you that every faculty search here is one desperate effort to find remotely qualified females and underrepresented minorities who have not already been snatched up 
by better endowed schools. Far from discriminating against blacks and Hispanics in admissions, we employ racial preferences to engineer so-called diversity. I can assure you that my faculty are not bigots. They have nothing but goodwill for history's oppressed groups and want all their students to succeed. At this very moment, millions of Asian students abroad are studying night and day for the privilege of experiencing this alleged maelstrom of hatred. If you feel so oppressed, step aside and let them take your place. But a college president never says any of these things, of course. Instead, he's silent before these outbreaks of mania, happy to sell out his faculty as alleged racist, and promising to make further amends for so mistreating the oppressed students. It becomes imperative then for the rest of us to rebut the victimology narrative. It is not enough to call for freedom of expression. That is, if I may borrow a term, a relatively safe stance to take. Even a few liberals will back you up. No, if we're gonna restore sanity and civil harmony, we're gonna to have to take on the victimology narrative directly and assert that for all our historical flaws, and they were real, there has never been a more tolerant, opportunity-filled society than our present one. The constant delegitimation of American institutions undermines the normative basis of law and order. The US has been immune from the tribal anarchy that is still common in other parts of the world. But if we continue down this path, anti-fa violence, the threatening confrontations directed against conservative public figures as they go about their private lives, the sucker punching of Trump supporters, and possibly far worse, will become the norm. A new path will, will mean re reclaiming the university, since the preservation of freedom requires knowledge of how unique has been the West development of the rule of law, the scientific method, and the concept of individual rights. But a university's highest calling is to convey the full glory of the Western inheritance, to inspire students to get down on their knees in gratitude rather than raising their fists in protest, to help them grasp the beauty, wit, and profundity of a vast and rich tradition, one to be discovered, if you'll permit me, a selective and idiosyncratic list in the works of Aeschylus, Rabelais, Tiepolo, Twain, and yes, at the risk of student complaint, Mozart. Thank you for your attention. Thank you.